You are listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. All right, as we come to our parable this morning, here's our big idea. Jesus mercifully covers your debt. Jesus mercifully covers your debt. Usually these big ideas uh, are very clear to see where I'm going as soon as we start out. And I couldn't get there this morning. So we're going to have to work to this end goal together. I love to read. And um, I love to read fiction. And I kind of like reading nonfiction. All right? Uh, I love reading fiction because I like being surprised by what's coming. Could I probably guess what's going to happen in a book? Probably. But I'm not one of those twisted people that likes to ruin the ending, okay? I like to be surprised. Now, there's another kind of literature called nonfiction, that is true things, specifically Christian books, that I don't like to be surprised. Because if I'm getting surprised by a book that I've picked out, that probably means that it's poorly written or misleading in its introduction. And so what do I do when I pick up a book like this? Um, Well, first, I read the introduction to the book, and then I read the conclusion of the book. And if I think they can teach me anything else than what they've taught me in those two portions, then I'll sit down and read the rest of the book. And if not, it goes on the shelf, and hopefully someone else will enjoy it after I'm dead. Okay, (laughs) but here's the deal. There are some things that you just don't understand if you start reading from the beginning. That's true. Like if an introduction's unclear, then I've got to read the conclusion to make sure I know where the author's going. One of my favorite theologians, he has a, a book, a bound argument with another theologian called The Bondage of the Will. And if you try to read that book from beginning to end, you will be utterly confused the whole time. However, if you read that book from end to beginning, suddenly everything makes sense. And here in our text this morning, we're going to have to grapple with the text a little bit like that. So you've heard it once already, but let's go down to the end of the text and see what it is that Jesus is offering up to us. Because we have some very good wisdom here this morning. The Pharisees, now we've heard a lot about the Pharisees. This text is not necessarily about the Pharisees. And so this is why we want to get this part out of the way first. Over and over again, Jesus has been butting heads with them. Last week, they were... They were murmuring against him, kind of standing awkwardly to the side, watching him eat, mumbling to one another about everything they didn't like concerning what he was teaching. But this week, they're ridiculing him, speaking loud enough for him to hear. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination. That's a big word. Uh, You could say hellish. You could say damnable. You could say deserving of righteous judgment. 
Jesus is saying, your actions, Pharisees, are deserving of judgment. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, we've already said this morning that we believe that God's word is inspired. That is, that God the Holy Spirit, through the hands of people, wrote down words that we needed for salvation. And for living life. And here we have some of those words for living life. And some of those words that will help us to avoid damning ourselves, as it were. And so Jesus said, if you are acting in the way of the world, i.e. loving money, as India read for us this money, which is uh, this morning, which is the root of all... Sorry, I just did my American thing. Which is the root of all kinds of evil. <laughs> which is the root of all kinds of evil. Then you are going to be slowly damning yourself. Does this mean that money is bad? No, we all know that money is very useful and good. So what are we talking about here? What is the love of money? Well, we're going to see this play out already in the text. But specifically, when we're reading the psalm this morning, when we didn't read our our passage from Amos, the men studied it this morning. But here's what happens. One of the primary ways that money is gained during this time period is by taking advantage of other people. To which all of you might respond, well, that's the way money is made now too, Wade. I'll let you make that declaration. I'm not going to do it this morning, okay? But that's one of the primary ways that people made money is by taking advantage of other people. This is evil. This is actually not loving your neighbor as we're encouraged to do. And so that's one of the reasons why loving money is bad, because you're going to love it so much that you're going to end up hating your neighbor in order to get it. Or you might just see life as a, as a competition to be won, as, as greed, something that needs to be satisfied in you, and yet you realize that you will never be satisfied. Or lastly, I think as the Pharisees we're dealing with money leads to corruption and we see this happen all over in the text of scripture not to mention the fact that here our manager it seems to also lead to weakness and pride okay he was living a life of plenty taking advantage of his master and all of a sudden when uh, something needs to be paid up you realize that he has not been doing his job well And he's too weak to dig a ditch. And he's too proud to ask for help. Not a good situation to find yourself in. Okay, so there's one statement from Jesus. Let's go up in the text just a little bit. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. This is good wisdom, right? If you're going to lie about a little thing, what's to stop you from lying about a big thing? If you're going to be honest in a little thing, you know what? Someone can probably trust you in a big thing. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust entrust to you true riches? What's the dynamic that Jesus is playing here? What's this unrighteous wealth? 
It could be wealth that is gained through sin. That's true. It could just be talking about thinking about money in a worldly way. That is, thinking about money in a way that has no connection to the fact that all good things come from God. All right, so this is where I believe unrighteous wealth is coming in here. But what are these true riches? Well, true, uh, we, we read it this morning. Truly God and truly man. It's kind of a, a big term, despite the fact that it's very, very little. And this just simply means that it's the truest of this thing. So what is the truest kind of riches that you can have? Well, one that's not going to rust or get moth-eaten. One that you're not going to die and leave behind. What we're talking about here is eternal life in God's kingdom. This is what the, the true riches are that Jesus is talking about. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, is Jesus talking to the Pharisees here? Yeah, He's talking to the disciples as well. And so we have a mixed audience, those that believe in Christ and those that don't believe in Christ. And He's speaking to both of them. And He's saying, okay, if you can't handle loving for, caring for, giving to, providing for others, if you cannot forgive as you have been forgiven, then that forgiveness isn't yours. You could insert any sort of good gift from God in there and say, look, if you can't also extend this good gift to someone else, I'm sorry, but the gift isn't yours to begin with. And just in case you're wondering, yes, these are hard words this morning. Um, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's Jesus specifically talking about? You cannot serve God in money. So, in your life, uh, we know this too. We witness it all the time in the real world. You can be extraordinarily rich, or you can be extraordinarily poor. And it doesn't matter what amount of money that you have, you can be gaining it by taking advantage of others. You can, be, you can be selfish with it. And it can lead to corruption and power. Why? Because it's not the amount of money that matters. It's the love of money that matters. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, we could get into details, but those aren't the details that Jesus is getting into this morning. What he's saying is the love of money corrupts. And if you're going to love it, then you're not going to love God and neighbor End of story. Okay. Why is he saying this? Well, as we just read, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so Jesus is drawing a very clear distinction for us here. So what's going on here in the text? Because I'm jumping around a little bit. Why is that? All right. That's because Luke seems to have clearly written a couple of different things here. How did Luke... We've we got to go back. We've got to go back months and months and all year, actually. How is it that Luke got this text that's put in front of him? How is it that God the Holy Spirit worked in Luke's life to give this text to him? Specifically, Luke is writing this letter to his friend Theophilus. 
Theophilus wants to know who Jesus is. And Luke tells us at the very beginning um, of the book of Acts and here at the beginning of Luke, he's saying, look, Theophilus, you wanted to know about Jesus, and so here's what I did. I went out and I interviewed everyone that was still living and had contact with him to get the details about his life. Now, as he's doing this, he's collecting sermons, he's collecting phrases, and here, towards the end of Luke's gospel, we seem to have a couple of sayings of Jesus thrown in that are good and true and coming from the lips of Christ, and yet maybe don't necessarily make um, one cohesive, that is stuck together, story. And so it's actually demanded of us by the text this morning to try to work through it, to swim through it and figure out what's going on here. So now I'm going to jump up to the beginning of the text again. And I'm not going to read everything, but we're just going to go over the details. So we know that there was a rich man and that he was a landowner and that this landowner had a manager, right? This manager, he would be someone that's in charge of an estate. Maybe he's handling the renting out of parcels of land. Maybe he's um, whatever. He's dealing with the business of his master. And then these charges were brought against him. And these charges were saying that he wasn't doing his job. In fact, he was wasting the wealth of his master. Last week, we talked about the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. But we skipped over the parable of the two lost sons. We did that last year. And so what did we leave behind, though, by skipping over that story? This exact same phrase. What was the first lost son, the prodigal son, what was he deemed guilty of doing? Wasting the father's wealth. And that's exactly what the manager has done here. So the manager says, it's time for an audit. SARS is calling up and saying, we know that we haven't paid any attention to you for 20 years, but now we're going to pay attention to you. And that is dangerous for this manager because he realizes that he has not been doing his job. He's not been collecting on the debts that are owed. What is he going to do? Hmm. If I'm going to survive in this world after I get fired, I'm going to need some friends. How am I going to get these friends? So he goes out and he hurries up before anyone finds out that he's fired. And he says, okay, you, I'm going to cut your bill by 50%. Now this was oil. This was liquid gold that this guy owed the master. This probably wouldn't go unnoticed, but he's going to try it anyway. Why? Because if this guy owes half the amount of oil to the dude's master, then clearly... This guy that owes the oil is going to be indebted to him, right? Maybe. Maybe that's where the story's going. He goes to the guy that owes wheat and he says, okay, a whole lot of wheat. You owe it? Cut off 20%. Great. He's made two friends. How's the story going to continue? Uh, he got fired, but look, because of his dishonesty, the, the new friends kept him safe from harm. No. Oh, well, the master's going to find out and he's going to chop his head off, right? No. The master says, good job, dishonest and unfaithful servant. <laughs> Come into your master's blessing. 
He commends the unfaithful manager. What in the world is going on with this text? What in the world is Jesus trying to say? Is he trying to say, look, because when we're reading parables, one of our primary goals that we as sinners are always trying to do is that we're trying to put ourselves into the place of action in the text. But that's not usually what's happening. Usually what's happening is that we are a passive sprout that's growing up out of the ground because of God's faithfulness in our life. Or we're the extraordinarily disobedient son. Or we are the coin that's lost and can't get found unless God takes action. So what are we in this story? Are we even here? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we are the dishonest manager who has taken advantage of all of God's good gifts and God is saying to us, well, you know what? I'm gracious. I'm merciful. Good job. Come on in. Yeah, that, that's, that's an almost appropriate reading of this, of this text. To be honest with you, there's no clear-cut way of understanding this text. Not exactly. There, there's lots of good things being said in it, okay? Maybe, maybe another option is like in most cases, God the Father is the master, and the person doing the work is Jesus. But no, that couldn't be. That couldn't be, because Jesus wouldn't be the dishonest manager, right? Let's skip that idea. Let's go on, and let's talk about the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees doing? They're out here supposed to be giving people the promise of good news, that the Messiah is coming. In fact, He has come. They have the riches of of salvation placed in their hand called God's word, God's promise. They're supposed to be giving it out freely to people and they're not doing it. But now Jesus has come and he's looking at their work and he's calling them to account. He's saying time for an audit. And now the Pharisees are like, well, yes, Yes, okay, I'm going to um, go out and I'm going to make friends and I'm going to get you some of your money back. No. What are they going to do? They're going to cover up their sin. They're going to say, okay, you, you've been breaking the law, but you know what? Um, I'm going to forgive you 50%. You, you've been breaking the law, but I'm going to forgive you 20%. Jesus is going to come around and he's going to say forgiveness is free and all that stuff. And you can just ignore him because you know that's not true. But me, I can offer you some forgiveness. Perhaps that's what's going on in the text. That's a good option, actually. I like it. Why? Let's keep reading for just one second. The master commended the dishonest man, dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness here, um, it could be underhanded. Uh, it could just be taking action that needs to be taken, even if it's not the best action, but he's doing it. <laughs> this is what Jesus says, for the sons of this world are shrewd in dealing with their own generation, are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous wealth. That's hard to understand, although the Pharisees have been doing that. They've been gathering support. They've been stabbing Jesus in the back. They've been murmuring about him. 
And they're using all the worldly ways that they have at their disposal to gain friends and influence people. What does he say here, though? So that when it fails, what? The unrighteous wealth, these unrighteous friendships that you've developed, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. What, what eternal dwellings? These debtors, they, they're going to invite me into their house. That way I always have a place to live. The Pharisees are magically going to use all the, the works and wiles of the world. And suddenly they're going to have eternal life. No. I think here with this last phrase, uh, Jesus is being a little bit cheeky. He's actually saying to you, um, so that when this all falls down around you, you can be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Hey, you know that forever home with God that you're looking for? You say that you're looking for. Maybe trust in these ways of working, these ways of power, these ways of being dishonest and shrewd. See what happens. It seems as though he's challenging us. He's challenging the disciples and the Pharisees here. And he's saying, do you think that's really going to lead you to an eternal home with God? So that's a good understanding of this text, I think. That this is an outright challenge to the disciples to not go that direction. And an outright challenge to the Pharisees to not go in a different direction. And here, too, we we do have some pretty good uh, wisdom that Jesus is dishing out to us. The fact that the the world deals more shrewdly than what Jesus' followers should be dealing in. In fact, we read all about this uh, throughout the entirety of the New Testament. That Christians that have wealth are using it for the sake of those that don't have wealth. And in fact, they're being extraordinarily unwise with their finances. The world, on the other hand, is very wise with finances. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be unwise, or that you shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying that you have to be worldly in order to be wise. But this is an example that Jesus is giving to us here. What's another option here? Let's go back to the one we skipped over. (sighs) Throughout the last several chapters of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been accused of many things. He's he's been uh, eating with sinners and tax collectors. He has been uh, going out and giving the forgiveness of God showing grace and mercy to those people that don't deserve it. In fact, if you, if the Pharisees, were to place themselves in the seat of God the Father, as they have been doing all throughout Jesus' ministry, they would look at Jesus and say, How dare you? I've seen the auditing of your books And the numbers are off. It says over here that these people deserve nothing and you gave them everything. 
So what's happening here? Here's another thing that's happening in this text. Once again, Jesus has placed the Pharisees at the head of the table. He's, he's put them in the, the place of the manager, or so it seems. He says, okay, you want to be the one that's taking action, don't you, sinners? Why don't you be the manager in this story? And you've got this, or the, you, you be the master. I'll be the manager. And uh, you think I haven't been doing my job well. The reality is, I've been going out and forgiving debts just like I've been called to do. Hey, Pharisees, you want to fire me? You're not the one sitting at the master's table. Our father is the one sitting at the master's table. My father is the one sitting at the master's table. And for the shrewdness that I deal in, the forgiveness that I offer to people, even when they don't deserve it, when in fact they have huge debts that they could never pay, I'm out here offering forgiveness to them. I know it's hard to understand. I know you don't like it. But we all need that forgiveness. Here in our text this morning, Jesus mercifully covers your debts. He's looking at the vats of oil that you owe and the wheat that you owe. He's looking at the sin that you're carrying with you and he's saying, I'll cover that. I'll take that debt on myself. And you know who likes the way that I deal with things? Our Father who is in heaven. It's everyone for themselves. Is that the way that we condition? What about you, manager? Huh? I mean, you, you've received Christ's forgiveness, and how do you deal with it? Uh, you deal shrewdly with it, don't you? Right? Uh, you, you take that free gift that God has to offer and you give it out sparingly. Huh? And yet, we're reminded when we come to the table this morning um, that. It's abundant. It's abundant. And in fact, the table is always set for you to come to. Uh, despite where you've been this week, the, the point of the meal and the conviction that we, we should carry into the meal is not to end the relationship that we have with Christ and the way that He uses this meal to bind us together as a church but actually to, to mend that relationship. And for you to be reminded that Christ's body and His blood is never in short supply. Instead, it is always there to be given to you for you to receive over and over and over again. And so He does. He sets the table for us this morning. There was a point in time where this meal had 
other means. And then Jesus said, no, this is what the purpose of this meal is. It's for you to be reminded that you are, in fact, a part of me. and That I am with you. That's in the past. Jesus did that. We're reminded of it today. He also tells us that, uh, Paul tells us here, that this is what binds together God's people in His church. And it's also just a little shadow of that meal that is to come where Christ Himself is present, presiding over the meal, preparing it and serving it to us. For we are His bride, fully realized in His presence forever. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.